You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Start by reading verses 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And so again, the the Apostle Paul is, is basically stating that Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. That, that if the resurrection didn't happen, then your faith is in vain. Uh, you know, now, many of you have read the book uh, by Lee Strobel titled Case for Christ, The Case for Christ. In fact, a handful of years ago, it was made into a movie, the story about Lee Strobel. Uh, and if you remember, Strobel uh, was an award-winning uh, journalist for the Chicago Tribune, but he was also an atheist. And as, a, as an investigative journalist, uh, he, he's, he's this atheist, and, and, he, and all of a sudden, one day, uh, something happens. And as the movie opens up, it starts off with him saying, the worst thing happened to me, my wife became a Christian. And so now, as an atheist and investigative journalist, he decides he's going to set out to prove that Christianity is a hoax, that the Bible is a hoax. And so he asks one of his co-workers at the Tribune, uh, who happens to be a Christian, and he says, if, if, if I were to disprove Christianity, what would I do? Where would I start? And his co-worker says, uh, he says, Lee, the entire uh, gospel, all of Christianity, the entire Christian faith hinges on the resurrection. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, well, then it's, it's a house of cards. Now, his, his Christian co-worker said that to him because he knew that Lee Strobel would not be able to disprove the resurrection. But that's what Strobel sets out to do. He tries to use his investigative skills as a, as a journalist to, to disprove the resurrection. But as he follows the evidence, you know what happens. The evidence leads him to believe in Jesus Christ. And so now he writes a book titled, The Case for Christ. Well, now in the same way this morning, Paul is is pointing out that that Christianity literally rises and falls on the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, our faith is in vain. So now with that, let's pick it up in verse 1. The first three verses, we we see that, that first of all, the Corinthians had an afterlife problem. They had an afterlife problem. We'll see what we mean by that. Verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the, uh, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in, in, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, let's remember that the Corinthian church was anything but a perfect church, Right? In fact, we've seen over the last several weeks that they, they were a problem church, a church filled with problems. And, you know, we, we've seen that this was a church filled with division, uh, a church filled with people who, who were abusing spiritual gifts, even fighting over spiritual gifts. This is also a church that was filled with, 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 with drunkenness and, and adultery and incest and divorce and sexual sin of all kinds of perversions. This was a problem church. Well, now this morning, we see that they also had an afterlife problem. What I mean by that was, that was that the Corinthian Christians were mixing pagan views of the afterlife, life after death, with the biblical view of afterlife, life after death. And as a result, they now had a problem view of the afterlife. Now, first of all, you have to understand that, that the ancient Greeks didn't even believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in resurrection of the dead. They, did, they didn't believe that there was life after death. 
Uh, many of the Greeks believed that, that basically your soul was imprisoned by your physical body. So when your physical body died, now your soul had been set free. But now within Greek philosophy, there were a couple different branches, a couple different groups. For example, there, there were the Stoics who basically believed in a concept that they called divine fire. And the idea is that when you were born, you received a spark from the divine fire, but then when you die, that spark, your, your body perishes, but that spark returns to the divine fire. So there's no heaven, there's no real afterlife, you just go to be with the divine fire. That was the Stoics. But then on the other hand, there were the Epicureans who basically believed that there was nothing to life but living. That you just live to, to get pleasure out of life. You know, to, to eat, drink, and be merry. But when, when you die, that's it. There is no afterlife. You just live for the here and the now. But then there were the followers of Plato. No, the followers of Plato basically believed in reincarnation. There was no heaven. There was no afterlife. You just kept doing it over and over and over. And so the Apostle Paul wa wa wants the Corinthians to know, and he wants you to know, that one of the things that makes Christianity unique, one of the things that makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world, is the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of the dead, not just life after death, but the resurrection of Jesus, that he rose again and conquered death. Now with that, by the way, one of the things that was under attack in Paul's day was, 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 that, was whether or not Jesus even died. There were people who said he didn't die. That's why in verse three, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And so right away, Paul is, 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 is saying, you know what? He died. There were critics in his day, as well as in our day, who challenge and say that Jesus didn't actually die. You know, like, for example, Karl Barth, who back in the 1700s was the one who came up with the so-called swoon theory. Now, the swoon theory basically says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just fainted. He swooned. And so later on in the tomb, the cold, fresh air of the tomb uh, re revived him and refreshed him, and he woke back up. Listen, that's just nonsense. <laughs> that's not just my opinion. That's a medical opinion. Listen to this. Uh, Dr. William Edwards, back in, in, in 1986, in the Journal of American Medical Association called you know, JAMA, he said, quote, the interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. And so doctors looking at the, at the evidence of the crucifixion come to no other conclusion than Jesus actually literally died. He didn't swoon, he didn't pass out, he didn't faint, he died. In fact, Dr. Alexander Metherall, former co uh, consultant for the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, describes the events of the crucifixion. And in fact, he points out that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and, and we're told in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22, verse 44, that during that night, Jesus sweat drops of blood. Now, Dr. Metherall says that, that this was a medical condition known as hematidrosis. Where, uh, under, where, where your body, body is under severe stress and severe anxiety to the point that it causes the release of certain chemicals that break down the capillaries in, in, your, in your sweat glands and now blood gets into your sweat and you are literally sweating what looked like drops of blood. And so this tells us that Jesus was under enormous stress, incredible uh, anxiety, knowing what was going to happen to him as he went to the cross. 
Now, along with that, Dr. Metherall describes the process of flogging, the, the scourging that Jesus encountered. As the, as the Roman soldiers would have taken one of these, a, a Roman cat of nine tails, and, and you see the nine leather lashes, and, and at the bottom of, of each leather lash would be these metal balls. And these metal balls would, would, would leave deep bruises and, and, and contusions in your body. But embedded in each of these leather, leather balls are, are, are pieces of glass and, and bone and, and metal and, and nails. And it's designed to literally rip off chunks of meat right off of the bone. Uh, and by the end of the process, your internal organs were exposed to plain sight. And so Dr. Metherall uh, says that, that, that victims of scourging would, would, would have experienced uh, a hypovolemic shock, meaning severe blood loss. And, and at this point, having lost this much blood, Metherall points out there's four things that would happen. Number one, the heart races to pump blood that isn't actually there. And as a result, number two, your blood pressure drops to the point that it causes fainting, fainting or collapsing. Did Jesus collapse? Remember, as he carried his cross, as he carried uh, his cross beam, what did he do? He collapsed. It was a sign of hypovolemic shock. And then number three, the kidneys stopped producing urine to maintain what little volume is left. But then number four, that causes you to become extremely thirsty. And in John's gospel, John chapter 19, verse 20, as Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? He said, I thirst. And then the Roman soldiers, to confirm that Jesus is dead, they stab him in the side with a spear, and you would, you would have expected blood to come out, but the Bible says in Luke chapter 19, verse 34, that water came out. Now, why did water come out? Dr. Metherall points out because this was pericardial effusion, meaning that, that as he went into hypovolemic shock, his heart rate increased to the point that it caused heart failure, resulting in a, in a buildup of fluid in the membrane around his heart. So that when they pierced his side, water came out. And so Metherol concludes that he died. And not only that, but he concludes that the cause of death, as he, as he died on the cross, the cause of death was heart failure. So we not only have conclusive evidence that he actually died, we have the determined evidence of what the cause of death was. He died of heart failure, medically speaking. And so now that Paul points out that Jesus actually died, now in verses 4 through 11, he gives the proofs, he gives the evidence for the resurrection. So in verse 4, after he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures in verse 3, he then says, and that he was buried and he raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Now, by the way, that's the Aramaic version of the name Peter. So he appeared to, to Peter and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He's saying, you know what? You can go talk to them. You can go interview them. You can hear their stories. They're still alive. He says, but some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also me, for I am least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. So what's Paul doing? Well, Paul now is giving us two proofs, two pieces of evidence that support the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, it would be the fulfillment of Bible prophecy the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And number two was eyewitness testimony. 
Now, first of all, number one, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Consider this. Uh, there, there, in the Old Testament, that is, the first half of the Bible, the portion of the Bible written before Jesus was born, in the Old Testament, there are more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. More than 300 prophecies. In fact, just in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth, there were more than a hundred prophecies fulfilled from the time he, he went to the cross and died on the cross. More than a hundred prophecies. In, in fact, in Psalm 22 alone, and by the way, Psalm 22 was written more than a thousand years before Jesus was even born, and yet in Psalm 22, there are, more, there are, there are some 18 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled about the Messiah as he died on the cross. 18 prophecies. And yet, these were written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Now, a statistician by the name of Peter Stoner, I've shared this before, but, but Peter Stoner wrote a book where he estimated uh, and calculated the odds of just one person fulfilling even eight of those prophecies. Just eight of those prophecies. He says the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies would be one out of 10 to the 17th power. That would be one out of 100 quadrillion. Then in his book, he illustrates how much 100 quadrillion would be. He says, if you had 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you would have enough silver dollars to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, if you take uh, one of those silver dollars, paint it red, mix it back in there, have, give one person just one chance to find that red silver dollar, that's the odds of one person fulfilling eight of those prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled over 300 of those prophecies. Statistically impossible. And yet Jesus did it. And so the first proof would be the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. It was impossible, but it happened. Number two, the second proof was eyewitness testimony. In fact, Paul even names some of the eyewitnesses. He says he appeared first to Cephas or, or Peter and then to the 12. And then he says, and he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Then he mentions James, then he mentions himself. Now, he's listing the eyewitnesses. Listen, in, in any courtroom in the world, the strongest testimony there is, is that of an eyewitness. But Paul's saying, listen, there wasn't just one eyewitness, and not even just two eyewitnesses. In fact, it wasn't even just the 12 disciples. Now, if it was, you, you, could, you could accuse them of collusion of some kind. He says, you know what? There were over 500 eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of them. Hundreds of different people who saw the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. Now we know from the gospel accounts that first Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Then after Mary Magdalene, then he appeared to the other Mary and, and, and the rest of the women. Then he appeared to the, to the two uh, who, were, who were on the road to Emmaus. He appears to them in, in, in Luke chapter 24. And then also in Luke chapter 24, then he appears to Peter by himself. Then later on, he appears to, to, to 10 of the disciples who were gathered in the upper room. Now, why were there just 10? I thought there's supposed to be 12. Well, one of them defected. That was Judas. Another one, Thomas, he wasn't with everybody else. He was a, a skeptic at this point. We call him Doubting Thomas. He wasn't with the group. But then later on, Jesus appears to all of the disciples, including Thomas. And, and then finally, uh, Paul then points out here that he appears to more than 500 at one time. And then after that, then Paul points out that, uh, that, that he also appeared to two skeptics. One would be James, and then the other would be the Apostle Paul himself. He says he appeared to James. Uh, and by the way, James, that was the half-brother of Jesus. 
Listen, just because he was the brother of Jesus doesn't mean he was a believer in Jesus. In fact, the Bible tells us in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, for even his brothers, that would include James, even his brothers did not believe in him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, by the way, tells us that, that, that his family, including his brothers, thought Jesus had lost his mind. They, they, they thought he was delusional. They didn't think he was the Messiah. They didn't think he was the Savior. They thought he was nuts. But then, when, when James sees Jesus living, sees Jesus rising from the dead, when he sees the risen, resurrected Jesus, needless to say, James now believes. And then Paul mentions himself. As one born out of due season, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I, I shouldn't even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Remember, before the Apostle Paul became a Christian, Paul was murdering Christians. His life goal was to destroy Christianity. So he murdered Christians, he arrested and imprisoned Christians, and then all of a sudden he becomes a Christian. That's what this is saying, is that you know what? The last two people that you would ever uh, suspect of, uh, of claiming that the resurrection was real, if it was just a hoax... The last two people that would ever say it was real when it was just a hoax would be James the skeptic and Paul the murderer. If they're saying it's real, it must have been real. But they went to their grave saying that the resurrected Jesus was alive. And we know from history, the apostle Paul was, was beheaded. Nero had him beheaded, but Nero gave him a chance to deny Christ before he died. And he refused to, to deny Christ. He went to his grave believing in Jesus. The same is true of, of, of James. He was stoned to death, but he, he believed in Christ. And so we have all the, the, the eyewitness testimony, testimony after testimony, more than 500 testimonies. In fact, there's a, a British lawyer by the name of Sir Edward Clark. He said this, he said, As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the events of the first Easter, and for me, the evidence is conclusive. Over and over again, in the high court, I've secured the verdict on evidence not nearly as compelling. He's saying, you know what, this is an open and shut case. This is an ironclad case. You look at the evidence, and the evidence is conclusive. There is no other conclusion than to say that he rose again. And so the medical evidence proves he died. The eyewitness testimony would prove that he rose again. But now as we pick it up in verses 12 through 14, now Paul plays the hypothetical question. He's like, okay, hypothetically, let's pretend that there is no resurrection. And so in verse 12, Paul says, now, if Christ is proclaimed raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, first of all, Paul's pointing out a contradiction. There were many Corinthian Christians who, who did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in heaven. They believed there was no future. They, they, you died, that was it. There, there is no resurrection of the dead. So Paul's saying, well, then how can you believe in Jesus? I mean, Jesus rose from the dead. So if you don't believe there's life after death... Then, then, then how do you believe in Jesus who rose from the dead? So it's like a contradiction. And then he says in verse 13, but if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now the late John Stott had said, Christianity at its very essence is a resurrection religion. He says the concept of the resurrection lies at its heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. In fact, that's exactly what Lee Strobel's co-worker had said. It was a house of cards. Without the resurrection, it all comes tumbling down. Now, by the way, 
Culturally, here's what Paul was confronting. What was happening in the culture at that time was there was this pagan notion that had become kind of a cultic teaching and, and it was floating around circles and eventually some of the Christians in that day started buying into it. It's not a Christian teaching. It was a pagan teaching, but a lot of Christians started buying into it. And this pagan teaching was called Gnosticism. Now, it was kind of in its baby stages, its infancy stages at this point, but, but Gnosticism basically taught the idea that, that, that Jesus did not have a physical body. And the reason they said that was they believed that, that flesh was evil. It was sinful. Only spirit was good. So for Jesus to be good, he could not have had flesh. He, and so they'd say he didn't have a physical body. He was just a spiritual being who, who gave the illusion of having a physical body. Now, by the way, if that was true, if Jesus walked around and he was just a spirit being, but he gave the illusion that he had a physical body, what does that make him? It makes him a liar. And so that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know, Jesus was just, you know, he just was this illusion. They would say stupid things like, like when Jesus walked on the sand, he left no footprints and other stupid stuff. And, 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 and so they're saying, you know, he was just a spirit being who gave the illusion of having a body. So what that means is he never actually died. He didn't have a body that could die. It was just an illusion. So therefore, when he, when he was on the cross and, and it looked like he was, his hands were being pierced, the, 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 it, was, it wasn't real. It was just an illusion. So therefore, when he was in the tomb, he wasn't actually dead. So therefore, he didn't really rise again. There was no death. There was no resurrection. And Paul's like, then how can you call yourselves Christians? If you believe in an illusion, then your faith is in vain, is what he's saying. You know, and he's saying, you know, if, if you believe that, that he didn't actually die and, and, and rise again, then you don't have a real Savior. Now with that, verses 15 through 19, Paul points out that, that, you know, he lives. And because he lives, that means something to us. Let's find out what. He says in verse 15, now Paul is still playing the hypothetical game. Again, hypothetically, he's saying, hey, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, well, then, then your faith is in vain. And then in verse 15, he's like, you know, hypothetically, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and, and you remain in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are the most to be pitied. So he's saying is, you know what? If, if you're calling yourself a Christian, but you don't even believe in heaven, you're calling yourself a Christian, but you don't believe that Jesus not only died, but then rose again and he's in heaven and he's coming back again one day to take you to be with him. If you don't actually believe in that, you just believe in the here and now, you just believe that, you know, one day you're going to die and that's it, you're done. Then, then you know what? You're the most to be pitied because you're calling yourself a Christian. You call yourself a, a follower of Christ and you don't even believe it to be true. And so this morning, we've seen the medical evidence that, that proves that Jesus actually died. Not only that, we've seen the, the, the signs for the resurrection, a fulfilled Bible prophecy, eyewitness testimony, all of those hundreds of those who saw with their own eyes the living Jesus Christ, among whom would be the apostle Paul himself. As he pointed out, Paul was, was, was basically a terrorist, right? I mean, not only was he a murderer, but he was, he was targeting a specific group. He was targeting Christians, murdering Christians, and then he becomes a Christian. And, 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 and frankly, the only explanation for such a dramatic transformation must be that Jesus is still alive. 
But the same Jesus that was healing uh, the, the sick, the same Jesus that was, that was, that was uh, healing the, the crippled, the same Jesus that was raising the dead was the same Jesus that changed the Apostle Paul. He must be alive. And so you have testimony after testimony after testimony. In fact, another legal scholar looked at it this way. He said, there's more evidence to believe in the resurrection than there is to, to, to prove that it didn't happen. Now, some will objectively follow the evidence to its most logical conclusion and believe. Others will empirically deny the evidence simply because they do not want to believe. And that's true. There are some like Lee Strobel who follow the evidence and they end up believing. Or, or like J. Warner Wallace, uh, a famous crime scene uh, investigator. And I say famous because he's featured on 2020 quite frequently. But before he, before he, he was a Christian, he was an atheist and, and he set out to try to prove that Christianity was a hoax, that the Bible was a hoax. So he used his investigative skills as a detective to try to follow the evidence to try to prove Christianity wrong. In the end, the evidence led him to Christ. Then there's a lawyer by the name of uh, uh, Frank Morrison who set out to write a book proving that the resurrection never happened, that it was a hoax. But as he followed the evidence, the evidence, as you guessed it, caused him to end up believing in Christ. Now, he did write a book, but just a different book. He ended up writing a book titled, Who Moved the Stone? And in chapter one, uh, chapter one was subtitled, The Book That Refused to Be Written. Kind of chronicles his own personal testimony, his life story, how he was going to write a book proving the resurrection wrong, and the resurrection proved him wrong. <laughs> he ended up believing in Christ. And so it's true. There are some who follow the evidence to its most logical conclusion and they come to believe in Christ. But then there's others who see the exact same evidence and yet they, they don't come to Christ. Why? Because they refuse to believe. It's not because there's something wrong with the evidence. It's something wrong with their heart. They don't want to believe. So they don't believe. And, and by the way, there's more proof for the resurrection. And, and, and I'm looking at it. You changed lives. The fact that Jesus is still changing lives today proves he's still alive today. And that's what Paul's pointing out to the Corinthians. Paul points out in, in, in verses 1 and 2, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that you received. He says, he says by which you are being saved says it's changing your life. It is transforming your life. You're being transformed from pagans to followers of Christ. Now you may remember back in chapter 6, Paul listed a whole bunch of lifestyles that the Corinthians used to live in. All these crazy lifestyles, lifestyles that included addiction and, and, and alcoholism, adultery and incest and prostitution and, and stealing and, and same-sex relationships and all these, 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 these different lifestyles. And then after he mentions all these lifestyles, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, and such were, past tense, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In effect, what Paul's saying is this. He's saying, you know what? If there's no resurrection, if Jesus was, was never risen from the dead, then who exactly changed your life? Because there's no other explanation for the dramatic transformation of your life. For you being transformed from death to life, the only explanation for that is that Jesus must be alive. That your Savior lives. And again, many of you in this room are proof that he lives because he's changed your life, just like the Corinthians. Many of you had these crazy lifestyles. Some of you came from, from addictions of, uh, I'm sorry, backgrounds of addiction. 
uh, alcoholism. Some of you came from backgrounds of, 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 of broken homes, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Some of you came from lifestyles of promiscuity or this kind of lifestyle, that kind of lifestyle. And yet, it can be said of you, just like it was said of the Corinthians, and it can be said, and such were some of you, but you were changed, you were transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You're a walking testimony for a living Savior. And so am I. Many of you, 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 you know my story. You know that when I was three years old, my parents uh, divorced. My mom and I came to Denver when I was four. But then shortly after getting here, when I was four, I was, I was molested uh, by the teenage son of my babysitter. And then also when I was four years old, I was knifed by two teenagers. I have a scar from here to here on my chest. And, 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 and with that, my mother, she had, you know, multiple live-in boyfriends. And they were all basically the same. You know, just uh, men that were, were, were drug addicts. Some of them were drug dealers, uh, alcoholics, and they were all violent. There was a lot of violence, a lot of abuse growing up. And as a result, I was bounced in and out of 20 different foster homes. And I would hear from therapists, I would hear from psychologists, uh, who, and, and from social workers who would say that, that because I was abused as a child, more than likely, statistically, I would grow up to become an abuser myself. And then because I grew up in a home of addiction, more than likely, statistically, I would become an addict myself. Then there's my biological dad. And, 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 and many of you know that my dad had committed suicide when I was 10 years old. And not only did he commit suicide, but his father before him also committed suicide. And I was running down that, tr that path myself. By the time I was 15 years old, I was a hopeless, suicidal teenage runaway. Now how it started was my mother woke me up. My mother, who has a, a history of mental illness, wakes me up in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, and says, my gun is missing, and you took it. You took my gun, and you're going to shoot me with it and kill me. And I remember thinking, you know, it, even if what she says is true, which it was not, but I'm thinking, you know, how smart is it for you to let somebody know that you, you know their plan and then go back to sleep so they can carry it out? I thought, I can't take this madness anymore. So I, I just, I ran away from home. And after about two weeks of being a runaway, I got to the point where I cried out to God. And I was like, God, you know what? I don't even know if you're real. I don't even know if you exist. I mean, for all I know, you're, you're just like Santa Claus, something that people believe in just to feel better about themselves. But all I know is that if you're not real or if, you, or if you don't help me, I'm dead. And frankly, I'd rather be dead than to go on living like this. Well, the next day, my uncle shows up on the scene. Long story short, my uncle tells me that, that uh, he, he, he invites me to live with him and my aunt on, on the condition that I go to church. And I asked him, how did you know to come and get me? Did my mom call you and tell you that I ran away from home? He said, no. He says, last night we were praying, and in prayer, God told us to go get you. The same night I was crying out to God, God was telling him to go and get me. And so after two or three months of, uh, of living there and, and going to church every week and, and hearing the gospel week after week, I ended up giving my life to Jesus, and that's when he changed my life and gave me a life that was actually worth living, a life of hope, a life of meaning. But listen to this. My, my life wasn't changed because of self-help. Frankly, I, I, was, I was beyond help. I, I, I wasn't changed because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. No, frankly, he had to pull me up out of the pit of hell I was living in. I was set free. I was saved. You know why? Because my Savior lives. And frankly, 
When you see people whose lives are being transformed in front of you, when you see people who are in bondage to sin, when you see people that that are hopeless and they find hope, when you see people that are being saved, do you know what it means? It means your Savior lives. And because He lives, you can live. And because He's alive, your life can be transformed. Amen? Father, we thank You. We thank You that You sent a Savior your son, God in human flesh, not only to come and and be a good moral teacher, to teach us what we need to, to, to know, not only to be an example, but Lord, you came to save us because we can't save ourselves. You came to change us because no one else can. You came to take this empty, miserable life and fill it and make it full and give it meaning. Lord, you came to give us life because we were the living dead. We were walking an empty, joyless, hopeless life. And maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe, maybe somebody stumbled into this room or maybe you're watching online. You stumbled onto the online uh, service. And maybe the reason for that is because God wants to take you from death to life. He wants to take you from empty and give you fullness. The same Jesus who who changed the skeptic James, the same Jesus who transformed the murderer Paul, the same Jesus who changed those Corinthians, so now that could be said, such were some of them. The same Jesus that changed my life wants to come into your life. And if that's you, if you need that, if you need a new life, you need to go from empty to full, you need hope, you need transformation, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I open my heart I invite you in. Lord, my life is empty and I need it to be filled with you. Lord, just come into my life, change my life. Lord, I thank you that you love me just the way I am, but you love me too much to leave me the way I am. So I pray that you'd come into my life and change my life. Give me a life worth living. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.